everything over the unbelievable lengths of time in the universe has transformed into one thing and another thing. And, and we're all kind of interdependent with that. And when we talk about human lives and human existence, it's even more obvious. Welcome to Meditationable, the show where you'll hear stories of experts in the fields of meditation, well-being, and more. This is your host, Anto. Today on the show, Buddhist psychology professor at Northwestern University, Marcia Grebowiecki. Hello, Marcia. Thank you so much for coming here today. My pleasure. I would first like to give you the opportunity of introducing yourself before we move into the conversation. I'm a professor in the psychology department at Northwestern University in the field of cognitive neuroscience. So that means I'm interested in how the brain um, provides underlying mechanisms for our thoughts and feelings, and in particular, our cognitions, the way we can pay attention, observe things, perceive things, and so on. And I, I kind of specialize in attention and perception from my uh, research side of my work. But I've also been interested in Buddhism for a very long time, since I was a high school student, in fact, was when I first became interested. And so I've studied Buddhism, some, sometimes formally and a lot of the time informally and practiced as well for many, many, many years. And since 1999, I've taught a course in Buddhist psychology at Northwestern, which has been great fun to do. Yeah, that was going to be my first question. With a background in psychology, how did you become so interested in Buddhism? Well, I think that, you know, I grew up in, I was a teenager in the, the 70s, and there was a lot of interest in New Age, what we call now New Age developments, you know, alternative ideas about the mind and about consciousness and Carlos Castaneda and the Tao of physics and all, all of these kind of cool books about, you know, what is this thing called the mind anyway. And so like a lot of other people who go into psychology, I was very interested in, you know, what is this consciousness thing and where does it come from? Um, and so in terms of Eastern approaches, meditation, yoga, just other concerns about very ancient traditions of trying to understand the mind and work with your own mind were becoming more available in the West. So Zen Buddhism had moved into North America fairly early on, really in the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, the beat poets and jazz musicians, a bunch of people who kind of picked up on Zen Buddhism early on. And then as we moved from the 70s into the 80s, that's when there was really a wave of immigration of Tibetan Buddhists from uh, the Tibetans in exile. So Tibetans who had fled from the Chinese invasion of Tibet had moved into India and there was a large refugee population there and they started to move elsewhere around the world. So really right in the late 70s and the early 80s was when a lot of that was happening. And there was more access at that point to Tibetan Buddhism. So people like the Dalai Lama have occasionally said that the uh, Tibetan diaspora, the, the spreading of Tibetans around the world was kind of an interesting moment for the dissemination of Tibetan Buddhist ideas to the rest of the world. 
coming off of that, what are the key concepts in Buddhism and how do these concepts relate to psychology? I would say the closest relation between psychology and Buddhism is that they're both really talking about the mind. And the focus in Buddhism is really on relieving suffering and being happier. So when you talk about relieving suffering, it seems to be kind of a, a morbid fascination with death and you know, bad things happening to people. But the insight, the Buddha's insight, historically was that everything suffers, all sentient beings. So all beings with a mind and with feelings um, suffer in various ways. They suffer from pain, they suffer from death and illness and so on, but they also suffer from dissatisfaction because the world tends to really insistently not be the way we want it to be. So whatever it is we're dealing with, we kind of would rather it be different than it is. And so this is this enduring kind of long-term sort of dissatisfaction. Psychology doesn't focus quite on the same things, but classically psychology was really about dysfunction. So what do we do with people whose minds are unsettled, disturbed, not working kind of in the right sort of way, and how can we help to relieve that kind of suffering? So those are kind of similar aims. And although, Buddhism absolutely is a religion. It's also in many ways um, most easily understood as a psychotherapeutic system. Um, that's surprising to people a little bit, but if you think of the Buddha started off, uh, first he did a very kind of apparently high level teaching of like the fundamental nature of reality after his enlightenment and everybody sort of looked at him and didn't understand anything he was saying. And so he sort of took a step back and said, okay, it's like this. There is suffering. There is a reason for suffering. Because there's a reason for suffering, suffering can be eliminated and this is how. So that's the Four Noble Truths, kind of the, the Buddhist path towards suffering. And if you think about that, that's essentially a diagnostic kind of system. There's a problem. What's the cause of the problem? If we can identify the cause of the problem, then we can address that cause. And if you can address the cause, you can potentially eliminate it. So that's almost like a medical diagnostic system. And so in the way I teach psychology of Buddhism, it's presented as a psychological system in that way. And that doesn't mean there isn't ritual and um, mythology and all sorts of other things that you would find with other religions anywhere in the world and that you don't have people who practice Buddhism more as a religion than as a, a transformational system, but you can certainly see it that way. So that's kind of how I teach it. And from that perspective, um, there's a, a couple of triads of information to make sense of that. And one that I've grown to have a deeper understanding of over the years is how uh, the Buddha system really relies on three um, self, they support each other, sort of like a three-legged stool or a tripod. Um, and the, the first foundation of that is a moral and ethical foundation. And so the moral and ethical foundation um, comes partly from the insights from meditative practices and also from the conceptual understanding. But the insight is that we're not fundamentally separate from other beings or from the planet. So I think with our understanding of climate change and deep ecology and things like that, we're really understanding, you know, the well-being of the planet is absolutely integral for our well-being as well. So we're not separate from these other things. We're not separate from each other. And that gives us 
a really strong moral and ethical foundation that we can't just act on our own without regard to others because we're not separate from others. So the choices I make, the, the ways in which I interact with other people affect them and, they, and that affects me as well. So we're just not separate from each other in the ways that we think. And given that we're not really separate from each other, that's a strong moral imperative to take care of others because if you ignore others, you're really harming yourself. So that's a conceptual kind of understanding of that moral foundation. And then the conceptual understanding sort of makes sense of the moral one uh, by pointing to three fundamental kinds of things. So one is the truth um, in reality of impermanence. That's that everything is dynamic, everything changes, nothing is static. And we often like to keep things the way they are. Like um, I've constructed the situation, it's perfect right, right now, right the way it is, and I wanna freeze it and hold it there. And that's impossible to do. And uh, you, know, you can come up with silly examples for yourself. Like you bake something, you bake the perfect cake and it's absolutely beautiful. You know, not a note out of place and it's exactly perfect the way it is. So do you stop? Do you freeze it? Do you petrify it and put it in the cupboard? That's just kind of nonsensical, right? Um, so you, you go ahead and you eat the cake and you enjoy it. And then the next time it's gonna be different. Um, maybe not worse, but different. And so things are constantly going to change. And it's like meeting a young child who's beautiful and just lovely exactly the way she is. Do you want to freeze that child at that point? Of course not. You know, the, the joy of, of life and existence is watching people change and flourish and grow. And that's what we want for them. So it's impossible to, to freeze someone the way they are. And, and we try to do that in, in lots of ways in relationships all the time. We want to keep the relationship just as it is. And, you know, we know at some level, like that's very constraining. We don't want to be in a relationship where someone wants to keep us boxed in, in a narrow way that we are right now. We want to be able to grow and change and develop. And ideally we do that with, with our friends and with our partners so that we're, we're growing and we're kind of dancing together in a way through life. So that's the um, another aspect like that um, that I kind of alluded to early, earlier is the idea of interdependence. So things are constantly changing. They're also not separate and limited. So if you think of something as being truly independent, so if I, if I hold up you know, a mug of tea, this thing seems to be really um, independent. It seems to be something to itself separate from everything else, I can move it around and so on. But if we think about it for a little minute, um, a ceramic cup didn't always exist. And in fact, it was extruded from the, probably the mantle of the earth at some point, that rock got ground down, that ground down rock turned into clay with pressure and erosion over millennia. The clay was discovered by someone, was mined, was turned into a, a workable kind of clay body, and then that clay was formed into a mug, and someone designed the shape of the mug. It was transformed by heat. It was decorated. You know, someone shipped it. Um, I 
I probably saw it online and ordered it and it came to me and, you know, it looks pretty permanent and, and it could well outlive me, you know, ceramics we dig up from ancient archeological sites, sometimes still intact, um, but it will likely break someday and be different and it will continue to transform. So everything in that way is changing and thus not independent. So pretty much anything that you look at and think about if you give it some deep thought, you'll see how that's connected to everything else in the universe. And it's really impossible. You can arbitrarily say, okay, I'm not gonna look any further than this. But when you do that, you're making an arbitrary stopping point. So, you know, it's like the kind of trite thing of saying, oh, we're all stardust. Well, yes, right? And stars are recycled stardust and all those kinds of things. So everything over the unbelievable lengths of time in the universe has transformed into one thing and another thing. And, and we're all kind of interdependent with that. And when we talk about human lives and human existence, it's even more obvious how dependent we are on others for our well-being. And we really can't do things on our own. Definitely. We're more interconnected than what we think we are. And that idea of we're all made of stardust, it's so funny because I used to hate my physics class. And until that concept, um, until they talked about that concept, I was like, whoa, this makes so much sense. And, and it's so true. Like The more that we look at things, the more that we think about how they came to be, the more we realize that we're all interconnected and we all end up being or coming from the same thing. So how do you think that embracing and understanding the concept of impermanence can help us in terms of becoming more accepting and understanding with ourselves as well? You know, I think most of the time we see impermanence as being a source of sadness and sorrow. We lose things that we want, you know, something falls apart um, that we were excited by. Um, but we often don't see the positive side of it, which is the growth and the change and, and the infinite actual possibilities in front of us. So that's the side that we don't focus on too much. And because this idea of keeping something frozen exactly as it is, it's not aligned with truth. It's not aligned with reality. Things just don't actually work that way. And when we try to make things be in a way that they aren't, and we get it very psychologically attached to that, we're living in a delusionary kind of world and we make ourselves very unhappy. I think of it always as, you know, we persistently try to do that and reality persistently fails to align with what we want. <laughs> Sometimes it's better. You know, sometimes, often even, things turn out to be uh, better than we wanted, them, what we wanted them to be. And we're frustrated along the way because they're not like that. So I think having this sort of deep level of understanding that that's the way the world works helps you to function more in alignment with nature. In, a, in that sense with physics, with actual underlying reality. And, you know, when I talked about the three, the three tripod thing, the, um, there's the, this conceptual understanding, which is things like impermanence and interdependence. 
there's the moral and ethical foundation. The third component of that is really practices. So these are um, the many types of meditative practices that can be used to take the conceptual understanding that you get from talking about things, from reading about things, and now you implement them in your life. So you're, you're sitting and watching the way your own mind works, becoming familiar with where it goes, what it's trying to do, being uh, aware of how active and dynamic our minds are. You can see them dancing here and there and you know a new idea pops up and then that triggers something else and uh, different sensations will draw your attention you know maybe there's an itch when you're sitting in meditation and it's just unbearable and you decide to experiment and see well what happens if i just leave it be and then somehow it just went away what happened i couldn't stand that it was even there a moment ago and now it's vanished and my mind's on something else and so this is the the practical kind of implementation of the ideas in your own experience and the fact that these are often uh, seated meditations or there's some sort of structure and space for doing these practices is giving you an opportunity to not be as distracted as we are in the rest of our lives and our minds are so busy trying to figure out what's going on in the world and make predictions and figure out what's happening next that we rarely have the opportunity to just watch without an agenda. And so that's what most of these practices do is they give us space to just see our minds and our bodies together in this open kind of space where there's nothing in particular that you need to be doing. Yeah, and it's this idea that meditating can actually help us digest and understand the beauty of impermanence, I think, because it's such an abstract concept, as well as um, detachment, which is something we're so scared of. Yeah, the concepts otherwise remain too abstract. You know, you need the, um, the experiential interaction with the concept. So, you know, even the idea of detachment, that doesn't sound very positive, right? It's like, oh, you're just going to be kind of cold and uninvolved. Not so much. You know, if you actually look at really long-term Buddhist meditation teachers and uh, long-term practitioners, they're more joyful. They're more engaged, um, not less. They're, they're more connected with other people, but, they're, but not in a clinging kind of way. And again, part of it is you can absolutely celebrate someone else and realize that you can't really be attached to them because there's nothing to be attached to. The cup, I mean, I, this is the simplest thing, right? I can think, oh, I'm attached to the cup. I'm holding it. I'm gonna protect it. It's my cup. It's not anybody else's cup, all of those things. I can kind of fool myself that that's true. But if we examine that a little bit, go like, yeah, not really so true. And do you really want to invest that much of your energy into a mug for heaven's sake either? But when I think about like a relationship, so our relationship, which is quite new, I want to hold on to you and keep you for myself and keep you as you are. How does that even make any sense? So the relaxation of that grasping that sort of the, there's a, an image used in Tibetan Buddhism of, of the Lord Yama, who's kind of like this monster with fangs and a skull headdress and, um, you know, big claws. And he's kind of grasping the cycle of existence. 
and we're stuck in that like we're in in the teeth and the jaws and the claws of of this wanting and wanting to hold on to things and you know ferociously uh, trying to hold things that actually are not holdable so it's like ferociously trying to grasp onto water for example you're clinging to it and you're trying to make it stay with you and constantly frustrated because you can't do it exactly i think that's the only way we can actually engage with things as they are and not with our perception of what they are or what we would like them to be there's this saying in spanish my mom always says which is soltar es amar which means letting go means loving and i think that's something um very true in life i feel like we're always trying to what you said just grasp and hold on and we're so afraid of losing of losing people of losing a moment uh a thing but we just but when we look at life and the way nature works and the way everything works like there's never loss everything just changes and is in constant change so when we accept that then we should not really fear loss but rather look at it as a mm -hmm. as something that's changing yeah and and early on in my studies of, of buddhism when i was an undergraduate and taking formal classes, um, you know, one of my teachers, Leslie Kalamura, who was a, a wonderful expert in, in Tibetan Buddhism at the University of Calgary at the time. And, you know, he talked about how um, in the, the early sutras, there's discussion of the Buddha being asked all sorts of questions and the Buddha refusing to answer them. And the one that really struck me was, you know, the Buddha's asked, is there life after death or not? And the Buddha kind of goes, well, that's a matter on which I've expressed no opinion. And he basically refuses to answer questions like that. And there's a sutras with a whole line of, of questions like that, where the Buddha says, you know, no comment, basically, <laughs> all the way through. And at the time, I was really, um, I would go so far to say, uh, upset by that. It's like, that's really, really important. Do, do we live after we die? Do we not? Like, those are fundamental questions of existence. So how could you not answer that? Um, and probably about 10 years later, after mulling that over off and on for that 10-year period, it finally kind of clicked for me. And I went like, oh, the Buddha didn't answer that question because it's ill-formed. Mm. So it's like the classic you know, ask someone when he stopped beating his wife. You can't really answer that question because the premise of it is one you're, you're not gonna be willing to endorse. And I think likewise for the Buddha, there's an idea that there is something to be alive and there is something to be dead and life and death are two fundamentally separate things that are not really related to each other. They're not interwoven, they're not interdependent. They don't recognize impermanence in the same kind of way because you're alive, then you're not alive, and they're these very distinct separate states. And in order to address the question, the Buddha had to endorse ideas about life and death that were not consistent with his understanding of reality. And if you see these webs of interdependence and change that are constantly in flux, then the idea of life and death 
flow together in these interesting kinds of ways where it's not as absolute. So even something as important to us as that, you can start to understand in a different way from this perspective. And it's easier not to be thinking about ourselves and our loved ones, but if you look at a plant, for example, um, you know, you see a budding rose and see how beautiful the flower is and it's very fresh and the dew drops on it, all of these things. This Thich Nhat Hanh talks about things like this quite often. And his expression of this is if you can look at that fresh rose and see the garbage in it, you can see the death and decay in the rose. And of course, the rose, the flowers, all the plants are growing out of that rich soil that's made up of decayed organic matter. So other plants and animals and so on that have died and decayed provide, like the stardust, that decay provides the nutrients that the plant needs to produce the flower and the flower itself will also become that before very long. So there's that whole cycle of being able to see like in the compost and the garbage, seeing these fresh, beautiful things coming out of it and also seeing that this fresh, beautiful object also will be like that at some point. And that's part of the whole cycle. So you're seeing again, how these things are intermeshed. And likewise, our reactivity to things like, you know, the rose, it's so beautiful. I'm going to lean into it. Like, oh, just so beautiful. I, I kind of want it. I'm going to like pull it towards mm -hmm. me, lean out. And then the garbage smelly kind of gross and there's the rejection and pushing away and, and leaning back and these are very from a psychological perspective very automatic almost reflexive attitudes that we have you know like something and we it's literally easy to pull towards ourselves in response to something we like and fairly automatic to push away things that we dislike and so you can start noticing also from some of these practices how that push me, pull you kind of relationship with us around all the time. Like, ooh, uh, and indifference, which is the subtle one. It's like, meh, boring, uninteresting. Who cares about the wall? Right? <laughs> you know, there's a wall behind you. I'm not paying that much attention to it, right? Even though it's there. So there's many aspects of life where we're, they just don't catch our attention at all. And so we're completely oblivious to them because... Wow, that's so interesting because when we look at trash and when we look at a flower, we can look at it as good and bad or something we like and something we dislike. But if we look deeper into what they actually are and what you said that the, like the compost, the decay of other plants actually gives nurturing to these new buds that are forming, um, then if we look at it in that way, there's really no such thing as bad or good or right. Right. now of course we have some biological yeah. um, instinctive responses so i i subscribe to a, a commercial composting service so i collect all of my food waste and things like that in a bucket and when it's getting close to they pick the bucket up every two weeks and when it's getting close to the pickup time and you know i open the bucket to put in the new food waste. It's pretty gross. <laughs> it's smelly. It's slimy. It's not attractive. Right. Yeah. Um, so although I know it, you know, intellectually, um, 
what this is going to turn into it's it's hard to find it beautiful at that moment right yeah. uh, there's sort of a an instinct of kind of revulsion at the same time um this past year they they gave um 10 gallons of the finished commercial compost back you know for the service and you can buy more and it's the most beautiful compost i enjoy gardening and there it's just this rich not smelly at all um, <laughs> amazing plant food you know that comes back from this so even though i'm not watching the moment by moment transformation and these things like the people who are working at the commercial composting facility it's pretty miraculous that this gross disgusting you know food that's gone off and peels and just waste food products mm -hmm. it, none of it is beautiful to us right it's really not gorgeous yet it has the potential to be this other mm -hmm. thing and to produce amazing food and, and amazingly beautiful plants and so on so that's all the a cycle that we can see over a relatively short period of time unlike our own lifetimes and however those connect but analogy there yeah but that's true like some things are just not beautiful beautiful at all and some things some emotions are not beautiful at all but they're also necessary like they're part of the cycle and they're needed for that transformation yeah and part of it is is recognizing you know when when our reactivity is helpful to us and when it's not so um, anger is a really challenging emotion and it's one that um, biologically probably has some function protecting ourselves, protecting other people. You can even have, in a sense, a righteous anger when um, you see injustice, you see someone being abused, and that, that energy, the energetic part of that emotion comes up so that you have the, the ability and the power to act in the protection of yourself and of others. So it can be kind of a righteous anger. But when it's our pride that's wounded, when we're jealous, you know, I'm, I'm not being respected the way I want to be, and we get angry from that, then that's one that uh, sometimes can provoke a little bit more reflection. It's like, like, where is this actually coming from? Is this good? Part of it is learning to pay attention to those emotions so you don't um, cause yourself and others a lot of problems and suffering because of just spontaneously acting out of those strong emotions. So being able to have the, uh, the self-discipline and control to just like stop, breathe, look at it, you know, not act impulsively in the moment. And it's very easy when we're uh, overwhelmed by very strong emotion to kind of get swept away by the emotion and then act in ways that sometimes we regret later. So that's also part of the practices is learning to be able to cultivate that kind of ability to be centered and to be calm, not to be disturbed. Um, I saw a talk many years ago uh, by Glenn Mullen, who's a Tibetologist, and the title of his talk was Enlightenment as a Perfected Sense of Humor. And 
it made a whole lot of sense. And, and his claim was the more realized, you know, the more developed the mind and the individual, um, the lighter they were, the less disturbed they are by things, the more they see the humor and, and the delight in life. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Meditationable. For more wisdom, visit at Meditationable on Instagram.